Hello, and thank you so much for listening. Today, we're going to be looking at university endowments. These have been in the news recently as the impact of COVID-19 on universities becomes a hot topic. They've also generated some controversy because universities have benefited from government relief programs despite not giving tuition abatements in light of the continuing pandemic. One university that's gotten a lot of criticism has been Harvard. Harvard is talking about the financial hardship induced because of the coronavirus crisis, but I mean, Harvard claiming it's poor feels like that one rich friend trying too hard to be relatable. They're like, well, during the financial crisis, we did have to sell the house, the vacation house. No, not the Aspen house, the Santa Barbara house. I mean, a ranch by the seaside just felt so impractical. Harvard's endowment has $40 billion. To put that in perspective, that means Harvard has enough money to buy Jamaica and then buy Laos and then would still have $10 billion left. Back in 1990, Harvard's endowment was just $4.5 billion, a reminder of Harvard's humble roots. The fundraising arms race really took off in the 21st century. After growing jealous of its alumni company valuations, Stanford became the first university to raise over a billion dollars in one year in 2011. Down south, the University of Southern California, which is a small white-collar crime factory with a football team, has also been a major fundraiser in their continuing efforts to make all of us forget that their most famous alum is O.J. Simpson. So today, we want to look at university endowments. We'll take a look first at their history, then we'll take a look at their structure, and we'll analyze why it is that a university with tens of billions of dollars in its endowment can still claim financial hardship. But first, wait, what? A segment in which I react to the most and least interesting headlines my producer Mimi could find. WTO chief quits suddenly, adding to global turmoil. Is that because of that op-ed written by Josh Hawley, that senator from Missouri? Josh Hawley wrote an op-ed saying we should abolish the WTO, despite having gone to Yale Law School, so he knows that basically he's just getting attention for his presidential run. Whistleblower warns Congress, we don't have a master plan. Whistleblower warns Congress, (laughs) this could just be retitled, man wakes up in America. Like, I'm sorry, this whistleblower is really not dropping the hot take that he thinks he is. We don't have a plan. Congratulations, whistleblower. You have eyes and functioning ears. Cats can transmit the coronavirus to each other, but they probably won't get sick from it. (laughs) That's like... That's the second most disturbing thing that cats have done this year, second only to the release of the film directed by Tom Hooper, which I do actually blame for coronavirus. I mean, I'm just saying, before Cats was released in theaters, the economy was doing well, I was attending class in person, things were looking up. Then they released the movie Cats, and now I have not left my apartment in, I don't know, Two hours, five days, a month. Will coronavirus forever alter the college experience? Corona- I actually don't think coronavirus will forever alter it. It'll just leave like a few years of really, really pissed off college students who like when we're 70 or 80, it used to be like back when I was your age, I had to walk 30 miles in the snow. And then our equivalent will be like back when I was your age, I had to walk you know, from my bedroom to my living room. And legally, I couldn't go any further. So walk 30 miles in the snow. 
We'll start with a look at the history of university endowments. The roots of the first university endowment in the U.S. go all the way back to 1637, when a man bravely left behind his native England to set sail for the New World, only to die a year later of tuberculosis. New England in the 1600s, not a day spa. That man was John Harvard. Of course, today, his name is the namesake of one of the nation's great universities and appears on diplomas, sweatshirts, and innumerable online certificates. For centuries, these colleges weren't really universities in the modern sense. They were dedicated to educating the local clergy, and they subsisted off of local donations of books and close relations with colonial governments. A major shift in endowments occurred at Cambridge University after World War I when economist John Maynard Keynes took over the endowment of King's College. Now, in between banging half the men and women of Cambridge, Keynes converted the endowment from primarily real assets like land or agricultural holdings to almost entirely equities. Following World War II, universities like Harvard followed suit, and today, 75% of the total $630 billion held in U.S. university endowments is held in equities. Another shift occurred in the 1980s, when David Swenson, the manager of Yale's endowment, began to diversify their holdings into alternative asset classes like private equity, oil, and commodities. Of course, propping up industries like private equity and oil also served as a job creation program for graduates of the School of Social Work. Most major universities followed Yale's lead in a move that made significant returns until 2008 came along, at which point everyone kind of sat quietly in the corner and thought about what they did. Now, moving on to endowment structures today, endowments today remain highly diversified megafunds, but their unique structure means their nominal value, or the eye-popping numbers and the tens of billions that we always hear quoted, are actually not the most appropriate way to understand a university's financial situation. This is because of the different types of funding an endowment can be used for. In any given year, only a small percentage of an endowment can be called upon to fund university affairs, while the rest remains tied up in various investments designed to ensure the long-term financial health of the university. Now, the types of funding are even more diverse than most university faculties, a low standard though it may be. The types of funding can be unrestricted, so you can spend on anything. They might be permanently restricted by donors, so they can only spend it on one program in perpetuity. And other types of funding might be temporarily restricted by the donors or by the university, and a lot of different agreements can happen in between. A donor agreement, it's a legally binding document enforceable in a court of law, and therefore these funds cannot be reallocated at the whim of the university. That may actually be a good thing, given that Harvard President Lawrence Summers once said women's brains can't do science good, and Stanford's founding president believed firmly in eugenics. Overall, 80% of endowment funds are restricted to use for specific programs and legally only allowed to be paid out in small sums on an annual basis. Harvard's endowment, for example, is actually 13,000 separate funds. Harvard aims to spend no more than 5% of its endowment in any given year. So if we look at the last year, for 2018 to 2019, the university operating budget was $5.4 billion, but the endowment only covered about 35% of that. 
Endowment spending went to professorships, scholarships, and research, and after these expenses, only 30% remained in flex spending. 30% flex spending. That works out to about $570 million. And that, of course, speaks to the hardship Harvard faces. I mean, $570 million? That's what the average millennial spends per year on avocado toast. How could Harvard be expected to make do on such a meager sum? Also complicating matters is the recently passed endowment tax. A tax on higher education endowments was signed into law by none other than Donald J. Trump, a man noted for his interesting relationship with tax law. As a result of the tax changes, Stanford was hit with a $43 million tax bill. Harvard had to pay over $30 million, while smaller institutions like Rice University still had to pay $7.5 million in taxes. Now, we also need to look at the goals of the university endowment in light of the COVID-19 crisis. A university's endowment is meant to support students in perpetuity, which means they have to balance the immediate needs of students with those for generations to come. Endowment managers refer to this as intergenerational equity. If you look at Harvard, for example, they have made a 7% return on their endowment in the last couple of years, but at least around 5% of the endowment goes out to pay the operating budget each year. Now, given how many students Harvard services, if the inflow of returns and outflow of costs are not balanced, the endowment runs out far more quickly than you might think. As an example, if Harvard gave free tuition to every student and there were no new incoming gifts, the endowment would be completely depleted within 25 years, which would carry us through half of Grey's Anatomy, and it would wildly threaten the grand American tradition of overpaying for degrees of ambiguous merit. To be clear, none of this is to say that these universities are poor. Princeton has $3 million per student. This is not meant to justify Harvard's treatment of vulnerable staff like graduate teaching assistants or dining hall workers. But popular images of university presidents sitting atop piles of gold like Scrooge McDuck also fail to put into context some of the very nuanced considerations these institutions have to balance. The eye-popping headline endowment numbers don't tell the whole story. It is understandable that they're reluctant to draw from their endowment in times of crisis. That would result in net losses on investments and make the future of the university even more uncertain. But one does have to wonder, will this crisis forever change demand for education? Will this crisis forever change how universities are funded? Honestly, probably not. Americans really like getting drunk for four years and calling it a transformational experience, and rich people really like seeing their names on buildings. 